the three biggest influencers on you know sports and live sports in the last three in the last 10 years are probably social media and social distribution number one sports betting number two and streaming welcome everybody i'm mark peter davis managing partner of interplay i'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society and this podcast is part of that effort on today's episode, I sit down with Dan Porter, the co-founder and CEO of Overtime. Now, Overtime is the leading brand for the next generation of sports fans. Dan and his team at Overtime identified that the traditional sports media players were heavily invested in and dependent on old infrastructure like cable deals. That left open an opportunity to create an agile sports media brand that leveraged newer technologies such as social media to meet younger, the younger generation where they consumed content. Now, this started out as an app, turned into a community, and eventually morphed one more time, and they currently own and operate two leagues. They operate the OTE and the OT7. One's a basketball league and one's a football league. Going beyond all of this, Dan is a startup guru. He sold a few companies before starting overtime, and he teaches entrepreneurship at NYU. If you are interested in media, the business of sports, or entrepreneurship generally, this episode is likely going to have a little something for you. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by FireOn Marketing. FireOn Marketing is a full-service marketing firm providing high-quality, cost-effective solutions. They support companies in developing websites, creating content, email marketing, optimizing SEO, and managing ad campaigns on social media, Google, and beyond. What's unique about their approach is that they connect all of the marketing activities together to create a unified conversion loop and generate higher yield for clients. If you're interested in learning more, visit fireonmarketing.com. Dan, thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks for having me. Cool. Let's, uh, let's jump in. Can you start off by giving us an overview of Overtime? Overtime is a company that I am the CEO of and I co-founded uh, with Zach Wiener. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a lot of things. Um, but right now, Overtime is basically an owner and operator of kind of next generation sports leagues. And we kind of started off five or six years ago as kind of like sports and social media. We were like the next ESPN and then we kind of evolved into a community. And then we said, what are we going to do with this community? And we're like, there's an opportunity for in basketball and now in football for us to kind of start and own new sports leagues, given that we hope kind of have audience and distribution. Uh, and that's what we've done. So Overtime owns OTE, which is a basketball league based out of Atlanta with six teams. Uh, and it also owns OT7, which is a seven-on-seven football league with some of the nation's top five-star recruits playing in it. Uh, and then underneath all of that is 75 million followers and a big community and a lot of content. So you started on the social side and kind of try to create a new disruptive media play. Can you tell us what the original plan was and how and why it evolved? The original plan really was about the audience. So when I worked at Endeavor, William Morris Endeavor, uh, building a digital department, I ended up working on a lot of sports projects, including with the NFL and with other sports leagues. And this was 2013, 2014. And in working with those leagues, I got a lot of feedback about their general concern about kind of the next generation of fans. 
That's crazy. That was nine years ago. So almost 10 years ago. Uh, and they were saying, you know, young people are on social apps, they're playing video games, they don't watch linear TV, they don't have cable. What does that mean for the future of sports and sports consumption? And I kind of walked away from that thinking, okay, well, that's not me, right? I have a big screen TV, I pay for cable, I watch live sports. But there's got to be an opportunity in there if they're all concerned about that. And kind of structurally, when you looked at the market, uh, the traditional players, the ESPN, the Fox, NBC, CBS, they were heavily invested in the old model. So they can't swing mm. and change for the new model. So over time, really, was this idea, who's going to capture the next generation of audience? And that was it. No idea how, no idea what the content was going to be, but just kind of this gnawing idea that kind of each generation has its own thing. My generation had MTV, like that was so defining uh, in the early 80s through the mid 80s to the point that I actually didn't have cable when I was a kid. And when I got to college, all I wanted to do was sit in the basement and watch hours of MTV because it was, you know, that that was the definition of our generation. And so we thought, let's build this for sports. Okay, well, well what are we going to put on it? I don't know, we got to figure that out and and kind of like, how are we going to do it? And we actually started by building an app. We went on Instagram to promote the app. And everyone was like, more interested in the Instagram account than they were in the app. So we eventually mm -hmm. abandoned the app. And then we kind of realized two things. One is there was kind of a whole next generation of superstars. Um, if you follow basketball, like a Zion Williamson or a LaMelo Ball. And we were able to go into gyms and cover them when they didn't have as much coverage. And not only would we distribute that on an Instagram account, that there was some kind of special sauce in a network approach. So today, Overtime operates over 50 Overtime branded apps. They're all called Overtime something, Overtime Season, Overtime FC, Overtime. Uh, and we, we realized that essentially through that network approach and by capturing, you know, 15 to 20 of the next generation superstars, that was going to be our formula. And, and when I ran the digital department, I managed uh, agents who managed tons of YouTube stars. And, you, you know, you have a sense of who those are and, and how they're successful. That's a lot harder to do in sports because you can't film yourself running up and down the court. So it's almost like we partnered with that generation of athletes, told their story in a really fresh and accessible way, use social media as a distribution tool. And that was kind of the origin and growth story of Overtime. Okay. And so the concept was original content that was the not on the court on the field. Yeah. Well, for us, it was on the court on the high school level because mm. there are no rights uh, around that. And then if we worked with college or pro athletes, it was off the court. So it was kind of everything except live rights. And traditional sports is built on a package of live rights. When you see this network has bid X billion dollars for the NFL, those are for live games. And so we really built it kind of for, for non-live rights. And I think one of the things that we learned and understood from a lot of the team, because the team was the audience, was that the idea of what sports was, was much more kind of encompassing than the traditional. So if you asked me, who's older, my idea of sports is like whistle to whistle. The whistle blows, you run up and down a field, you run up and down a court, the whistle blows, game's over, we're done. Uh, and the only other thing that exists is kind of like, talk radio or talk television around that. Right. For our audience, everything was sports. Somebody crossing somebody over in a park in basketball, a pro player doing something funny on the sidelines or tweeting. Like It was this very expansive idea 
where you kind of took the walls and you kind of blew them out. And that story around sports, especially the overlap of sports and culture, was really where we played. And how did that bridge you guys to uh, building your own leagues? What was the process? So, so that what I described was kind of 2016 to 2018. We realized we had a really big community. We really were focused on the audience. We tried to put the audience on the account as many times as we could. We responded to over a million direct messages and comments. There are probably 200,000 people who saw somebody from overtime in their high school gym filming uh, a basketball event or, or, or filming football or anything else like that. And so we got to that point where people kind of knew what overtime was and we had built this community. And I remember that there were any number of different things that happened. One is the idea of athlete empowerment, kind of, especially after George Floyd in 2018, there was a lot of talk about, well, are we going to let athletes in college make money and in high school and, and so forth? That was, I think, one big motivator. The second was an event that we did um, where a lot of the top players came and played an event that we put on. And talking to the parents, it became clear that they were not they were fairly dissatisfied with kind of the process of sitting on a bus, going to 100 AU games, you know, what what college had to offer. Some were not interested, some were interested. It became clear that there were kind of on the athlete and on the system basis, some things that were structurally not working. And then on the business side, I think that we kept hearing about how, you know, Summer League for the NBA loved overtime because it was a way when people came to Summer League, they, they got to watch all the players that they had watched on overtime. And you think that's great. But if you abstract that from a business case, what you're really saying is overtime is really good at amplifying the intellectual property of other people. And that's not an awesome business per se. And I think we used to fantasize like, what if we had our own league? Because I mean, that's like an extreme and an absurd thing to say. Uh, And Zach and I went to talk to Commissioner David Stern. Um, While he was still alive, he was our first investor. And he said, you know, I spent 30 years running a league. It's the worst idea I've ever heard. Stay (laughs) in your lane. Um, But I think once we, we started thinking about it, it was just like, wow, it's like we have the distribution and we have the content. It's like, and we're covering all these players. If we could do this as our own league, that would be crazy. Um, And I think two things happened. One is we, we hired a bunch of people who had run sports leagues to kind of advise us. But ultimately, the macro conditions really changed, resulting in what you have now, name image likeness, where college athletes are able to make money off their name image likeness. Um, you know, LaMelo Ball deciding to go to Australia to go pro as opposed to going to college to make it to the NBA. All of these things happen. And the idea just kind of grew and grew. And we went out to try to see if we could raise some money for it. And everybody from NBA players uh, to other folks were really excited about it. And if, if you look at overtime today, we have over 30 NBA players who are investors. So about That's 6% awesome. of active NBA players, 10 NFL players, four team owners. Um, I remember sitting down with Carmelo Anthony and I said, so we have this like idea. And he said, 30 seconds into it, he said, I hope that was what you were going to say. And so it's rare as an entrepreneur that you kind of take an idea out and people are like, this is awesome. And then you just kind of get caught up on it. And then you just think like, 
this is like completely absurd. Like what right do I have to go out and like start a league and like try to change a basketball ecosystem? I'm like, I'm not a sports executive or anything else like that, but it kind of took on its own momentum and it turned into overtime elite. And we just, you know, we finished our first year this spring, um, packed audiences, millions of followers on social. Uh, we had two players in the draft, one who got signed by the Spurs. Uh, we have some top 10 draft picks next year and some really good signings. And, you know, it was crazy to watch the draft and hear Jay Billis talk about, well, or they could go to overtime elite. And we're like, that's our crazy idea that we had. So um, to go from an app that didn't work to a basketball league is quite a journey. What's the, uh, what's, what's the future here? It sounds like it's happening. It's early days. What does the next cycle say, look like for you? I would say the future is we would like to kind of own sports leagues or kind of, I say sports IP intellectual property in a business sense, um, in basketball and football and potentially in some other areas as well. Our focus has really been kind of the 10 to 12 mainstream sports that are understood on a global basis that you can turn on your quote unquote TV streaming service or internet device. And you know, immediately, Oh, that's tennis or that's golf or that's boxing or that's MMA or anything else like that. I think our goal is to find sports where there is some kind of white space or opportunity in the structure to make it to the next level, as well as in the storytelling and the characters there. Um, and then I think third, to find a partner in football, we, we initially partnered with Cam Newton in basketball. Obviously I mentioned the 30 NBA athletes. And if, if there's a partner and there's a white space opportunity and you can tell the story as they become pros, whether they start when they're 22 or they start when they're 17, those are kind of the market dynamics that we look for. Does that mean you're looking at, um, sports that are already wildly popular? It sounds like the first two obviously are, or are you correct? Okay. I don't, I don't think that I would feel comfortable making a bet on making pickleball as big as Wimbledon or anything Pickleball's else like gonna that. Pickleball is going to be huge. I'm a big fan. Pickleball, pickleball is I'm big. A big, and it's a big per, it's yeah. a big participant sport too. <laughs> it doesn't mean that people want to watch it. Um, Fair. And, and maybe I picked the wrong one. Maybe I should pick like cornhole or something like that. I just went after you for it because. But, I, but I, I, you know, you, 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 you. You're going to have friction in a lot of areas. The one area where you probably want less friction is a sport that people already understand and, and like right. to watch. And by the way, as an as a side note, um, I think people often make the mistake that participation drives viewership. Soccer is, you know, probably the most participant sport or in the top in the United States, but it's not the most viewed. Mm. And I'm a huge NFL fan and a huge football fan, but I, I never played football. So I think that, that I think is, as you build out in sports, you find that that's kind of a, a false assumption. What's the playbook for starting a league? I mean, this is not the type of typical endeavor people kind of land on in their lives. How the hell do you do that? <sighs> um, get a lot of, get a lot of good advice. Try, try to find some allies, uh, Try, try to make sure that there's some guts of the white space and then spend money, find coaches, recruit athletes, all, all of those kinds of things. It's kind of, it's like a roller coaster ride to some extent. And, and I would say ultimately, you know, if you're a sports fan, try to find something that is unique. I, I think traditionally in this country, we tend to say like, 
it's football, but it happens after the Super Bowl is over. Like it happens at a different time of year. And I don't think that that that's different or, or unique enough as it as it regards this, to the sport. I'd say the second thing is you have to give people characters they know and they care about, and you have to have the infrastructure to tell those stories. I might love football or basketball, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to watch anything just because it has a round or a, a ball or a football on it. Like who's playing and why do I care about that uh, to some extent? And so I, I, I think that, you know, really digging in around those and, and finding where you have that competitive advantage. And, and we already had the distribution, we had the brand and we had the storing storytelling capacity uh, to do that for sure. Now you started out telling the story of kind of how this all came to be by talking about how the um, more traditional sports media companies were trying to figure out how to adapt and acclimate to a new tech paradigm, right? How has the evolving tech landscape changed things, right? Obviously, we've got the advent of social media and the obvious things, but are there any major tectonic shifts that maybe are surprising to folks about how this has played out? I would say the two, the three biggest influencers on you know, sports and live sports in the last three, in the last 10 years are probably social media and social distribution, number one, sports betting, number mm. two, and streaming. Like this year, you'll see the NFL on Thursday on Amazon. Um, Amazon and Netflix both made bids for Formula One and even ESPN and winning the bid wanted to put some of it on ESPN Plus, which is a streaming service. So you see some changes in distribution, um, and everything around the game. At the end of the day, I, I would still make the point that I could watch a football game when I was seven years old, which was a heck of a long time ago in the 70s. And you could put me to sleep and wake me up 50 years ago. And I'd be like, that's a football game. Where's Howard Cosell? Kind of everything about it looks and feels the same. And Whereas you could show me Fortnite or Snapchat or any number of things from the 70s to now, and I would have no idea what I was looking at. So I, I think that there's there's opportunity there. Um, and I think the flip side is true also. I think when I was a young person, there were so many fewer, there was so much less competition for my attention. Right? I would play pinball or maybe I had a handheld video game, but you, you could watch sports. Now, now there's so, I mean, there's, a million shows on streaming. There's you can catch up really quickly on Twitter, on Instagram, or on TikTok. So there, it's just it 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 competes in a different landscape. And there's a core demographic, maybe forty to seventy, for whom it's exactly the way it's always been. And there are a lot of those folks. So sports is fine because that audience remains gigantic. But I'll never forget going to a Premier League football game. Aka soccer with kind of one of the most famous coaches of all time, and him telling me, "I'm worried that in ten years I'm going to look out and the stadium's going to be half filled because a generation grew up playing video games and they just never got into it the same way that I got into it, or they kind of got into it in the way that like we might be familiar with sports, but it doesn't mean we sit down and we watch it. Doesn't mean we buy a ticket. Doesn't mean we buy a jersey or anything else like that. Got it. And esports, do you view that as just a competitive? medium at this point or how does it fit into the bigger landscape you know yeah i i think there's there's two important things to consider number one is that when you talk about esports at least in the united states you have essentially competitive gaming 
And yep. then you have what I would call streaming or let's play. And in, in the United States, let's play is significantly larger. If you look at the aggregate audience who watches, you know, people like Ninja or Nick Merckx or other people like that, those are not competitive gamers. Those are, you know, streamers. Um, and and that's much larger. And then secondly, when you look at kind of traditional esports, you know, PvP, player versus player or team versus team, significantly larger outside of the United States and specifically in Asia, regularly packed stadiums for all kinds of matches. So I would say in the United States, it is relevant, but it's not, it's it's a paltry competitor for traditional sports. And most young people in the United States prefer to either play or to watch someone else play, but not to watch competition. Why is it different here than there? Why would um, other countries be more into it? Is there any, is there any sense on what's, what's clicking? It, it, I, I can't tell you that I know 100%. I, I do think that, number one, our professional sports and infrastructure here is extremely robust um, and very mature. I mean, the NFL, the NBA, I mean, these are excellent top-level products with incredible executives that have been around for 50-plus years. So there's there's less market opportunity, whereas... Oftentimes in in Vietnam or in parts of Asia, there's much less competition and much less established. And there's been, you know, political change and all kinds of things that have changed the nature of those countries' political histories. So so that's that's number one. I think that some of those countries have a much larger um, uh, young person audience, kind of uh, who kind of grew up on mobile phones and and played games. And, and obviously, if you look at Asia, they are far ahead of us in streaming. They are far ahead of us in essentially live chat where you gift people stuff. Uh, our kind of live shopping infrastructure here, despite everybody starting a company every three months to do that is paltry. I Outside of QVC, not many people really buy that way, but in Asia, it's massive. And so I think both culturally in terms of history and then in terms of innovation, um, th those are two big differences. So I want to do a quick rewind. Earlier, you mentioned that you guys responded to a million comments on social. And I'm sure that's one of the signals that the formulas look at in the social media platforms. I always like to get a little bit operational for folks listening uh, who are building. How do you respond to a million comments? So I would say a million side? comments and direct messages. Okay. Um, it's, it, you know, it's not really the how. The how is you have four or five people who are passionate about your brand who want to get out there and talk to the people who follow you every single day and not only talk to them, but they're good at it. They're funny. They know how to respond. Sometimes they know how to respond when people, um, you know, say challenging things in the, in the DMs or in the comments. Right. But I think the ultimately the trolls or people say things like I'm not happy with myself or other things like that. There's mm -hmm. a whole range of, right. of, of emotions that people express. So I would say, I think about that. And I think about the fact that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are hundreds of thousands of people who saw somebody with an overtime t-shirt and an iPhone filming in their gym. And it's not that those things are operationally difficult to conceive of. It's that most people don't do the grassroots work. Uh, some companies obviously do, but if you think about media, media is like, you know, Joe and Sally left 
Vox and they put up some laptops and they started their own media company that did this and that. And, and for us, we, we, we never did that. We were like, we, we were hand to hand combat, literally winning fan by fan. And internally, especially when we launched these new leagues, I say, you know, day one of the league, our goal is honestly just to have a hundred fans. If we have a hundred people who love us, I can understand how we can get to a thousand. If we can get to a thousand, we can get to 10,000. And that's really different than these kind of like, boil the ocean or people who aren't willing to do the kind of the grassroots work. It's, it's like I came of age when, you know, promoting a record when you were in the music industry was about having a street team. You had campus rep programs and people put stuff under your door and you had people driving around blasting music and that very kind of hands-on marketing, even in the digital era works. Yeah, it's one of the secrets in entrepreneurship is that very few companies get all the, go the distance on fully automated solutions. A lot yeah. of them have a lot of blood, sweat, and tears poured in You the need that. And I, I think at the heart of your question, you were like, oh, well, this is an operational way that you can be successful in the algorithm. But that's just being successful in the algorithm. That has nothing to do with actual success. And you could think about you know, popular accounts back in the day on Facebook or Instagram that were so good at kind of hacking the system but you had no idea what their brand stood for. You would never wear a t-shirt with them on it. There was no real connection. They were just kind of, you know, artificially created views because they were good at hacking the system. And even when I was in the mobile games business, uh, there used to be people who would pay download farms in China to download thousands of copies of their games so that they could rise up the chart and hopefully grow from there. And in the end, it's very rare that any of those things actually last over time. What are the new technologies you're paying attention to? Because we've talked about a couple of the waves that have already hit the media space. What's the stuff that's coming? I mean, are you paying attention to blockchain, NFTs? Those are obviously the big buzzwords of the day. What else is going on? I obviously pay attention to NFTs as an individual um, who is not yet retired due to um, bad timing of acquiring NFTs. Um, uh -huh. But uh, I, I think broadly, to me, NFTs as an end in and of themselves are less interesting as a potential building block, I think are highly interesting. Uh, we did one large project where we took kind of a March Madness bracket and we let people buy or sell it depending on how their bracket was doing throughout the course of the tournament. And that totally just enables a secondary level of behavior versus kind of a sunk cost bracket behavior. So I, I, I think that that's, I think it's interesting. I think like anything, it, it'll be very hard to ignore the noise and not chase the trends. But I think people who are heads down will ultimately build interesting things on top of that. Um, and other people will let their valuations get away from them or um you know build copycat things you remember when groupon came out and there were like 110 kind of offer companies that are exactly like that um so so i think it's interesting but it, it's hard to navigate i think that sports betting on a on a technology side especially on the user interface side is still very technical I, I look at sports betting apps and I just think like I'm looking at a Bloomberg terminal yeah. and I'm not really sure what to do. And if you think about the way that, you know, Robinhood um, changed the nature of UI around 
um, that or even, you know, the original iPod changed the UI around the MP3 players. I think you're going to see a lot of kind of user interface innovation around making that successful. I would say the number of people I see who wear a whoop or an aura ring or anything else like that for some kind of light quantification, um, quantifying of self and kind of measuring uh, and so forth. Uh, th those are off top of mind. There's, I, I mean, I think if you're going to talk about social and platforms, I mean, look, TikTok just released that they're, they make more money than Snapchat and Twitter combined. Um, there's Doesn't no doubt. Me. There's no doubt that when I dig into where our fans are and I read the comments and I look at the engagement that, you know, Instagram is an amazing platform and it's what we built over time on, but the audience um is getting older and there's another generation on TikTok, which means if you're really strong on one platform you have to think about how you build your brand on the other platform um but besides that there's there's nothing you know there's those are the main things that i can think of that are kind of you know ultimately game-changing I, I, obviously there's vr and you know we actually have a deal with our league with MetaQuest, and you can watch um, the dunk show and other things like that in VR, which I think is cool. But I think the game changing thing there is the social nature. So I go into a room, Horizon, uh, on on MetaQuest, and all of a sudden there's like ten other people there. And I'll tell you a funny story. We had one of the players who was, we, we, we streamed it live in there, I think, which was really cool. And we had one of the players watching the kind of the on-demand viewing of it. And there were a whole bunch of people in this kind of room conversing with each other. And one of them was like, that guy who just dunked, he's not very good. And the player was like, that's me. Like I'm wow. that person you're talking about <laughs> and something like that. So it was like a really, that's a, new it, was a very, it was a very cool experience. So I, I think we haven't, I think we're still trying to figure out like what that looks like, but when it works and it, it's immersive, if you ever played Beat Saber on on the Oculus headset or anything else like that, I think it's yeah. pretty pretty awesome. Have you played Vader in Mortal Three? I have not. Is that worth playing? That's worth playing. I'm going to nerd out really hard for a second. Um, they it has a, a segment where you can do a lightsaber duel, and you're essentially fighting all these things that come at you. And the first time I played it, I was like, all right. It's busy. It's a game. It's boring. And then I had a moment after about a month off where I went back to it. I realized it was a lot like the Matrix in that moment where Keanu is in the white room. And I got into full ninja stance and went into full fight mode uh, and broke a sweat playing it and realized that if you kind of commit to the immersive experience, uh, it's next level. So that's a, that's a game I'd recommend uh, yeah. trying out. Look, I mean, I think, you know, look at the number of, I mean, they, they, they really lowered the price on the headset, made it super easy to use and set up. They sold a ton of them at Christmas. And I think of all the kind of up and down moments, it was a, it was a huge moment. I, I, I'll tell you by the time, you know, we did some of our events and I went to talk to the players in our league, a bunch of them were said, oh yeah, yeah, I got one of those for Christmas. I've been messing around in it and I've been watching things and, and, and playing games. So that, that was like a huge light bulb moment. That's awesome. What does the sports media industry need? Right? Like you're only going to be able to solve so many problems staying in your lane. What do you wish someone else listening to this would build and hack and solve? 
it's a good question. So it, it's, I think it's tricky because if you're a league, you're basically a collection of independent team owners and you have a responsibility to those team owners. If you're a team owner, you care about everything, parking, concessions, facility, season tickets, other things like that. Um, and if you are a, a broadcaster or, or you're looking for innovation in that league, you have a very, very large core audience who is highly satisfied with the existing product. So you can think about, you know, if you think about the most stat heavy sport, baseball, any kind of innovation or change you might want to make from a rule basis or anything else like that is going to have a ton of people who are going to say, well, what are you doing? Like, this is tradition. Like, this is the way that it's always been done. Um, and so unclear, I think that some of the innovation, we still tend to focus on let's hire kind of a former athlete or a bunch of former athletes to talk about sports in a very particular way. You know, there's a lot of access and there's still not a ton of access. I think um, the NFL has done some really cool stuff with the 8K cameras. If you ever look in the end zone with the depth of field, um, you know, I think there is incremental innovation. But I also think it's an area where, again, there are many people who watch the NBA, college football, who are satisfied with exactly what it is. U ultimately, I think it's less about the innovation on the consumption project product and most of all, making sure that it's still as central a part of people's kind of consumption and participation. I mean, I will say it's a good, I feel like it's a great business to be in during a recession because people, you know, still have passion about their sport and their team. But I think you can never take it for granted. Even if you look at the whole turnaround of Formula One, you know, the previous owner of Formula One had said kind of overtly, I, I don't care about the next generation. That's not, I'm not interested. And, you know, things kind of fell apart for them and Liberty Media bought it. They made a couple of rule changes. They did the Drive to Survive show on Netflix. Which was um, huge for them. Yeah, huge. They announced Las Vegas. They have now three races in the United States. Um, and, you know, I think with some skillful operation and understanding of, of the audience, the, ca the camera that's like in the car showing you that, I think with all of that, they've, they've really resuscitated. And I think all the leagues definitely pay attention across sports to like, how do we stay relevant? How do we keep upgrading our rule set? And, and at the end of the day, the number one thing that every fan wants is just access. And so how do you figure that out? That, that, if you ask me like, what is your kind of special sauce and what you guys do, I think we really try to focus on access, everything from posting raw workouts um, on YouTube to bring the fans in kind of virtually and, and literally into the, into the game and into the lives of the players. Dan, you have a very snarky and hilarious LinkedIn profile. I'm sure you're aware of this. Um, in the middle of the sarcasm, it does, <laughs> it does mention that you built three number one apps. And I know that to be a fact. Can you give us a story? Yeah. So, uh, I love platform hacking. Like when I bought the very first iPod, um, and actually when I bought the very first TiVo, I like cracked it open and added my own memory thing to it and stuff like that. So to me, like LinkedIn is this incredible creative platform. 
And so there are two ways you can go. I, I, I wrote a lot. My son has a friend who creates like fake Goldman Sachs employee accounts and then just corresponds with recruiters all day long. <laughs> and he'll just write like, you know, 20 years derivative trading and like nothing else. <laughs> and then like yeah, underneath, there'll be like expertise in fisheries and wildlife management. And like people reach out to him. As, and I was just like, wow, I thought I was funny and creative, but he's more creative than I am. Um, so also, it's before- genetic. Yeah, before before um, overtime, I I worked in you know for a large talent agency, and and before that, I uh, ran a mobile games company. And you know the short story is over the course of four and a half years, we made forty plus games, and we did good, not great. We were kind of doing really well, and then Farmville came out on Facebook and kind of really kicked our butt in terms of audience size. Um, and then we made a massive hit game 10 years ago called Draw Something that was kind of number one top grossing, number one paid, number one free. Uh, we made a sequel, Draw Something 2, that was also number one. And, you know, together those games were downloaded over a quarter of a billion times. That's awesome. Now, uh, I know that entrepreneurship is never easy sailing. Um, you talked about OMG Pop. You had a little bit of a close call there towards the end. Can you tell the story of kind of how you saved the day? For sure. Uh, I, I wouldn't be bold enough to take credit for personally saving the day, but I will say in the passive voice, the day was saved. Um, so as I said, like we had made a bunch of games and we had raised some money. I mean, it's funny. I think we raised $5 million in our Series A and $11 million in our Series B, which like today combined is like a seed round. It's kind of like a joke. But a back world. then, it seemed like a lot of money. Um, and we kind of had that weird space where we were not we were successful. We, we didn't fail. People loved our website. They loved our games. But we also weren't gigantic. So like we were somewhere in the middle, we had a million kind of people playing our games every day, but we didn't have 10 million people playing our games every day. And so you kind of go on and we were getting to the end of our runway and we were essentially running out of money. It's another way to say it. And the investors were like, well, what should we do? Should we do another round? And I think we just kind of felt like we made a lot of games and we didn't build a hit game company. So maybe we should just go out of business. Like, and we'll have a lot of sad fans. Um, but that's that. And so we had a couple of games in the hopper. Um, and I thought, well, you know, why not? I, I thought I'll design the last game because, like, why not just go out with a bang? Um, and so I was involved in 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 designing the draw something game. It was made with like four people, a very small subset. And so we had these kind of other big games that we'd been working on. We released them, nothing really happened. Um, you know, we had maybe eight or nine weeks of cash. I I had I laid some people off to try to extend the runway. We released the draw something game. Uh it kind of popped up the charts, then it went back down in the process of that happening i think we realized there was a technical problem with the game and two of our back-end developers stayed for 48 hours straight over weekend fix the game we re-uploaded it to the app store um and it just kind of blew up and the rest was kind of history i think to give you some stats on the game 
It was downloaded millions of times a day. I think at that point in 2012, it was on nine out of 10 iPhones. Um, our kind of DAU at that time was 24 million, which is, you know, larger than some of the social platforms had been. Um, and we were making a million dollars a day. And all of a sudden, we went from this kind of like middling, beloved, like cult game thing that couldn't really make a business to almost running out of money and essentially, you know, laying off people. And I remember at one point, um, one of the finance guys said, well, what, what if we just like stop buying snacks for people? Like how much runway could that give us? And we did the math and we were like four hours. Like it, it was just like you're at a certain size when like right. not giving people smart food, popcorn and like, right. you know, oat milk lattes is really going to save you that much money. Um, and that obviously turned everything around. And within, you know, a couple of weeks of releasing that game, we had multiple offers for the company. And a couple of weeks after that, we sold the company for $200 million. So we went from right. like, kind of middling to almost failing to going out of business to making a game to turning around and selling the company. And in the process of, of doing that, I hired back all the people I had laid off so that there's, they could benefit from the kind of stock option. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that last touch. Media is such an interesting space to me because it feels like at some level, the hybrid of art and business and technology. What's the, you know, you've stumbled into this and I, I think there's something just innate. What's the DNA that makes someone a good fit to be a media entrepreneur, media executive? What is that secret sauce? What is that twist? I would say, so first of all, media is like a horrible business. Like you should never start a media company. Like it's fun and like you're a consumer. So you consume media all the time and you know, everybody likes to start businesses and they're like their friends read it or they read it or watch it. Um, but ultimately, it is either a subscription or an ad-driven business. Um, there are, I mean, you can count maybe on one hand the number of kind of subscription media businesses that are gigantic. So if you and I want to start something and it, it's niche and we want to live in Wyoming and, you know, each make 100K a year and that's awesome, like we can go out and we can get 10,000 subscribers and that's a decent business. But people usually do it because they want massive amount of scale. Um, so I think that the people who are successful have a very strong point of view or way of looking at the world that is extensible enough that it can be understood by the other people who work for them and by the organization as a whole, um, to use an example that is the opposite of my personal beliefs, but Fox news is that right. Fox news has a point of view about the world. It's not a point of view that I personally endorse, but from an abstract business sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that almost made M MSNBC understand, well, we also have to have the opposite point of view and we have to attract talent that internalizes that view. And we have to understand who's the audience and how are they being served and, and how do I reach them? Because I think the biggest mistake that people make is when they start media companies, they think about what they want to cover, but they should be thinking about who the audience is. So, if we quit and we're like, let's do a uh, media business that covers podcasts or venture startups, you know, venture-backed businesses, we're thinking about the subject of the media. But the real question was like, who's the audience and who's the underserved audience? So you could say, 
in a, in a certain political basis, you could say, well, these guys don't get the news that the mainstream media offers them, or they think the mainstream media is too liberal or too conservative. So I know who the audience is, and then I tailor for that, you know, or, you know, I think a, a classic case is you have a company in sports like the Players Tribune that starts and says, we're going to let athletes create the media and tell their stories. But I would always ask them, well, well like, who's the audience? Like, because mm-hmm. you, if you have a very defined sense from a, a psychographic or a demographic of who the audience is, you can constantly tweak the, the content to reach and who that is. So that could be our audience is young people, our audience is the most hardcore fans who love stats, our audience is, you know, X or Y. And, and I think that people who understand that can be hugely successful at building a brand and building a reach. Um, and people who don't, don't. And then I'd say the second thing is that it's really hard to stand out and you have to be somewhat extreme or you have to go into a somewhat newer area. So if you want to cover NFTs in your first, second, or third, you have a good opportunity because nobody's covering them. But if you're going to make social content or content about news or movies or anything else like that, unless you're like hyper opinionated or have something radical to say, there's so much media out there. It's really hard to stand out. Now you, you've been at this for a while, right? You've got, you've raised from great investors like Graycroft and Dreesen Horowitz, Spark and others. What's different as an entrepreneur raising when you've already had some, an exit and you've already established your reputation? What's different for you in the process? And I'm going to ask a, a follow-on. What do people do wrong when they're second-time founders? What's the pitfall? So I would say that I figured, like, I'm Dan Porter. I started and sold two companies. Write me a check. I'm going to do it again. And it didn't work. Like, they just didn't care. Like, it wasn't like I had no experience, but I, I, I started another company that I raised money for and I sold. So this would be my kind of third foray into that. Um, And I think on the pro side, there were people who knew me. So all of those people you mentioned and the firms, Bijan and Spark, Ian at Graycroft, um, you know, Ben Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen, like at least they all knew me. So I got in the door Mm -hmm. and I got to give a pitch and maybe I got over the line. But of those ones who funded me, there were, 100 to 120 who said no. And I was like, you're overanalyzing this company, my guy, just give me the fucking bag. And I'll make you money because that's what I do. <laughs> like, didn't I just fucking prove that? Uh, and it really didn't pan out that way. Um, so I, I wish that it was incredibly different, but it wasn't. But it was also wasn't an accident that Spark was an investor in my other company. So I think it's most valuable if you've been successful and you have a relationship with an investor who who knows you and they know what they're getting. I would say when it came to operating the business, I mean, you autocorrect for so many mistakes. I mean, the first company I ever sold, by the time we sold it, I couldn't find the initial paperwork from when we had incorporated. It was like in a drawer somewhere. Like I forgot to trademark something. Like it's a lot of stuff I just, we just kind of messed up on. And so you get very good and very religious on that, the kind of second time around. Um, you know, the second time around, I had all my founder shares, but, you know, I never like put them in a trust for my kids. I never did anything. So just all I did was pay taxes. 
This time I'm like, oh, I, I get it. You're supposed to do this and put some here and put some there. So each time you get a little better. I, I will say that on the operating of the company and at least to date in the interaction with the investors and the board of directors, um, I feel like they have a high level of confidence in me and they're not trying to run the company or undermine me because it's clear that I've had not just a track record of doing this, a track record of making it through COVID, you know, a track record of making it through 2008, um, through lots of things like that. But I, I wish that having been successful was the golden ticket that I thought it was going to be. I know you're a professor of entrepreneurship. You teach a class at NYU. What's the most valuable lesson you cover in the class, the thing you, you wish every entrepreneur heard? The most valuable lesson that we cover is that there is no, like, there's no textbook or handbook for kind of successful entrepreneurship. I can't teach you how to do it. I can't give you a rule set that if you just follow it, you're going to be successful. And I think that two things we really focus on is number one, the difference between kind of the full customer development process where you really figure out what people's problems are and you become an expert in those problems versus the idea like, I have an idea. Let's do that idea. You know, you, I kind of always say like, you know, what, why, did, why did X company fail? Because they built something nobody wanted. You know, and I think you you have to say that and drill that in over and over again. And then I'd say this the second aspect is just how wild and unpredictable the journey is. And in a way, college is a lot about predictability. You go and then you narrow your focus to have a major, and then you interview at the career service office. And so in a way, all, all you're doing is kind of de-risking and and taking a path so that it's predictable. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to get a job. Then I'm going to go here. Then I'm going to go to graduate school. Um, and that's relieving to parents and it's relieving to students. And I'm a big fan of the How I Built This podcast. And so we have, you know, numerous stories. And, you know, I started the company and then I ran a business and then I mortgaged my house and then I failed and then I succeeded. And every year the students are like, wow, this is like a crazy roller coaster ride. And I said, yeah, it's, it's literally the opposite of the experience you're in now. It's highly unpredictable. There's no clear um, causality between A and B that if you do A, B is going to happen. And there's no rule book. And I think if they take that away, then that's bigger or better than any kind of like tactical growth hack or anything else like you think you're going to learn. Dan, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Huge having Dan on. He is a bottomless pit of wisdom for entrepreneurship. So that could have gone on a lot longer. I hope you got some value out of it. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, for any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.